I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Ladies First, a story of women in hip-hop. The women in hip-hop are up against many roadblocks on their path to success, including living in a man's world. What do we need a female MC on the bill for? We got this, 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 and this. The policing of our bodies. Oh, you women are talking about you too nasty. What? While also... Just trying to stay out of trouble. Today, we're talking to executive producers Rasham Nijan and Carrie Twig. Over the past five decades, hip-hop has influenced everything from culture to fashion to politics. Its lyrics have tackled discrimination, sexism and violence, and given voice to the authentic experience of millions. But from those first mixtapes to streaming audio, women's contributions to hip-hop have too often been marginalized. Ladies First recontextualizes their roles in the genre's 50 years by reinserting them into the canon where they belong, at the center from day one to present day. By giving flowers to originators or hearing real talk from contemporary superstars, Ladies First looks through a female lens and runs through the history of the music that changed the world. You need us in hip-hop. We got to say what we got to say sometimes. You need that beat. You need that rhyme. You need that song. You need those words. And if they're words, only a woman will speak. And I'm joined now by executive producers Rasham Najan and Carrie Twig. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yes. Ray, you've said one of the reasons why you produced Ladies First was to see if the history of hip hop would be altered if it were examined with, quote, an exclusively female focus. So is hip hop even hip hop without women? Uh, Of course not. Um, (laughs) I think that as as we've said in the show, women are absolutely critical to building hip hop and being part of that conversation. And I think part of what we loved doing in the show was sort of re- examining some of the big moments in hip-hop and reminding people that there was a female point of view and a female influence at all of those stages and all of those milestones. And when we look at hip-hop at large, it's not that, you know, women became MCs later or now we're seeing this incredible wave of incredible MCs. No, we were there, you know, women were there from the very, very beginning and were part of building this genre and part of building all aspects of the genre. And so I think that's been one of the exciting things for us and also to be really intentional about calling out women who didn't get their flowers during the time that they were active and actually out as MCs. I think that was a really big part of it for us is that we want to have all of the names that you know, but we also want to make sure you hear all the names that you don't know. Yeah. So you talked about, you know, getting their flowers in the documentary. And Carrie, I'm wondering, like, why have these women's contributions been overlooked? Because we do see, you know, these hip hop retrospectives at music awards and, you know, at different celebrations of hip hop. And, you know, there are women in this documentary that I have never seen celebrated publicly before. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we were so excited about with this project is that hip hop reflects the same things that happen across every sort of industry and every sector of American life. And in many cases, the the labor, the contributions, the 
um, achievements of women go under-celebrated. We are often sort of cast to the side or expected to have been helpful for the sake of it, or we are just drowned, our voices are drowned out by others who are kind of shouting louder or um, more willing to step to the front of the pack and and claim the glory and claim the limelight. So we've seen that over and over again. Hip hop is really no exception. Time and time again, we sort of the squeaky wheel gets the grease and we and we ignore so many women who are just like head down doing the work, focused on on making something beautiful for themselves, for their friends, for their family, for their sisters, who are raising children who are participating in their community and so don't have time to build all the sort of scaffolding and infrastructure around them that allows them to receive and reap the material benefits of so much of their work. Um, Hip hop is, is a really acute example of a phenomenon that we see influence impacting women sort of in every walk of life. Now, if you're not comfortable answering this question, that's okay, but I'll answer it first to make you more comfortable. I'm wondering, growing up, if you had favorite women MCs, who you were the most excited to interview for this series. Um, I was the most excited to see MC Light. I'm going to just throw that out right now. Uh, did you have like a particular like moment of excitement when you realized like, oh my God, I can't believe we got this woman to be in this documentary? Well, I'm I'm wondering if Carrie and I had the same person and it Queen Latifah. <laughs> oh, that was my awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was too obvious. No, so there, was, there was a lot of moments, but getting Latifah was a big deal. That was a moment yeah. for both of us. And I'll tell you, it took us a minute to get her into the chair. <laughs> and she did not disappoint. Do you think hip hop is dead? And I said, if the woman's voice is not heard, then yes, hip hop is dead. If we are not in it, if we're not playing on the radio, if we're not making records, then yeah, it is. She showed up in a beautiful light blue convertible, Bentley, hair flowing in the wind. It was like just the way she was meant to land on set. And she was absolutely incredible and so gracious and just as kind and informed and boss as you would hope she would be in real life. Same for you? A hundred percent. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean... Absolute, absolute legend. Now, obviously, in your documentary, you make the point that in the early days of hip hop, it was really hard for women to break in. And today, there are a bunch of A-list uh, female artists in the genre, like Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion. I'm wondering, is it still hard, though, for women to break in and be MCs, like, like, like A-list level MCs? I think the bottom line is that the music industry is an extraordinarily difficult place to thrive. Um, the competition is absolutely fierce. It is not set up to be gentle or easy or accommodating or to fill you with competence or stability. It is brutal. It's, it's difficult. Um, that said, I think one of the things that makes it certainly easier is that the gatekeepers have been um, sort of disassembled and they're more diffuse. You have social media, you have an ability for young MCs to reach out to the, their contemporaries, to make their music, to make their videos, to build a visual language, to build an artistic profile without having to get the buy-in of a label or of a certain PR person or an agency. And that, I think, has led to this proliferation we see of young artists. But I think we were not naive to the fact that that has meant some sort of wholesale reform of the music industry. I think it's still an incredibly brutal place to try and try and make your dreams come true. But at least 
artists have more tools than they would have, you know, 20 years ago. One of the threads that you draw that I think we see in some kinds of industries, but not others, is this idea that like women MCs can't be or aren't as good as male MCs, right? But no one ever asks like, is that woman as good a singer as that man? Or is that woman as good an actor or as that man? Or even like, is that woman as good a songwriter as that man? Like in like lyrical song sense. So why does there seem to be no hesitation in having this conversation about MCs? I'm, I'm just, this is something that makes me really curious because this is like, it's a type of music, right? Why is it this one form of music that there seems to be no hesitation about having this like inc- incredibly sexist conversation? Yeah, you know, I think that that's probably a question with a lot of different answers. And I'm happy to speculate. I love the little speculation, but I don't know that there's one definitive answer. I think we have a tendency in this society and, and in others to gender certain professions, right? And so we think of women as singers, but that that dynamic certainly would have existed in jazz, that would have existed in rock and roll, would have absolutely existed in punk. We have a real tendency to do that and um, to assign gender attributes to specific professions and then therefore kind of exclude or make our decisions based on those judgments. You know, I think we're starting to see stories from around pop culture that debunk that and really challenge us to think differently about those stereotypes and assumptions that we're making. But I think the kind of concept of an MC got coded in our mind really early as a male thing, whether it was Sugar Hill Gang or uh, Cool Herc or, you know, we just assumed that this was a male thing. And from that moment, started excluding women in the first sort of women that we vaunted and we looked up to were part of male-dominated crews. Um, And so it just became this thing. I think also battle rapping was one of the first inceptions of how rapping began. And we associate, obviously, battle with aggression. We associate aggression with men um, and being a masculine feature. And so it's not how we think of women. When we got there, they was putting their money up, and I went over to my mom and I said, can I curse? And she was like, I don't give a fuck what you do, you win that $50. And I remember them putting me up on a crate, and the first words out of my mouth was like, motherfucker. And and I think I just won from there. Also, don't forget, this was a young people's art form. So we're not even talking about women. We're talking about girls in a lot of these early days. Like these, this, these were teenagers, right? And so like, you got to go to class, honey. Like, what are you doing? And we just don't think of them as being these like hardcore, you know, battle rapping or aggressive or all these things that we coded, uh, that rap got coded to in our mind. And so Overall, as a society, we're thinking more about how gender actually works and all these assumptions, blah, blah, blah. But I think these ideas get really stuck and lodged into our minds um, and they persist over and over again. Whereas singing, being a songbird, feels very feminine. Yeah. I mean, another kind of coding that got um, sort of 
thrown in there was sex, right? And another double standard that your documentary explores is, you know, lyrics and sex and sexually charged lyrics or sexually empowered lyrics. When men do it, it's broadly okay. For instance, I just watched the juvenile Tiny Desk concert, huge pop culture moment, the crowd in the studio and the crowd, you know, in the world went wild when he did Project Bitch and Back That Ass Up. But when women do songs like WAP, it's considered shocking, it's considered dirty, becomes the subject of headline news segments. And you talk about that in the documentary, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that now and why you thought it was so important to, you know, to dedicate so much time in the series to that. I think it's an important thing to dig into because, which we might have said earlier, but part of the genesis of this project was to investigate whether the experience that women are having inside of hip hop, how much of that is mirrored of the experience of women outside in the world, specifically black women. And then I think there's a lot of pieces of that are universal to women at large. And this idea around sexuality is a big piece of that, right? Is how are we allowed to own our sexuality the way that that shows up in hip hop? That certainly is, you know, cultural coding for what we are allowed to do outside in the world or how we get treated based on, you know, how sexualized we look or how we dress. And all of these things are really related to one another and how we think about the culture of what's acceptable for women. And when, you know, we get into the deeper and darker parts of that, it starts to relate into things like rape culture, right? Which is, when is it your fault? When were you too sexy? And then there's this whole conversation around, well, being too sexy then is now bad. There is a lot of anxiety about Black women carrying out these decidedly sexualized roles. Much of that sexuality feels scripted through a man's lens. And I think that they're definitely female fans who are also responding to that. So there's just all of these ideas get really conflated. And I think what happens inside of, of hip hop is not contained to hip hop. I think that that is something that women experience at large is having this conflict of how do I be, you know, true to that sexual part of who I am as a human being but at the same time, understand what that's going to mean in terms of how society treats me or looks at me. So I want to talk a little bit about your process uh, making this documentary. Five decades of interviews, music videos, you had a ton of archival material. How overwhelmed were you by the amount of material that you had to go through and put together and mix with all of these incredible interviews you had to make this series and put these incredibly cogent threads together? Um, I'm glad it's a podcast. If you can see my eyes, they are yeah. <laughs> Um We really wanted to have this intergenerational conversation of women, but also have archival and material, things that some people may have not seen or things that felt like this was a little bit under the radar, underappreciated. We really put it front and center and we were really intentional about that. There's parts of the, the documentary of the series that are chronological, but then there's also just a lot of it that feels like we're trying to draw relationships between different time periods. And a lot of that is done through these archival materials, through these interviews, and through so much of those sort of golden personal items and photos that we were able to collect from our from our interviewees. Hmm. Yeah, I would just add to that. It's to to that specific point that Ray was making. 
huge portions of the series are organized thematically. And that was also to help illuminate places where we've made progress and celebrate that progress and recognize that progress. And then also places where we haven't made any progress really since the inception 50 years ago of hip hop. That was trying to take as honest a look as possible at this cultural product, at this massive phenomenon, the ways that it has absolutely evolved us, that it's made us freer, bolder, to have access to more opportunities, but then also ways that we've just been really stuck in that society or kind of the prevailing forces of systems that were not designed to celebrate women have continued to prevail. Um, And Archive allowed us to really tell that story in a way that was both exciting, but yeah, to your point, daunting. I mean, hip hop has been very well covered and hip hop heads have a lot of passion. And so us trying to find something new to surprise them, to give those fans something um, to really revel in and and to feel as though there's a there's a fresh take was a challenge that we set to ourselves that was um, bar higher than I even think we knew when we started. (laughs) I love the way this series is organized. It's four parts. Each part has four sections. And, you know, some of the sections, you know, have these through lines, this direct line, you know, between MC Light to Rhapsody to Tierra Whack. They have these strong lyrical skills. They all write about their um, authentic experiences. You know, there's a section about, you know, colorism. There's a section about, you know, uh, queer artists in the genre. Did you think of this as a literature class of sorts when you were putting this series together? Because that's how it felt to me. Um, well, I am I am the kind of history political nerd of our crew. Um, I have a whole background in politics and government and a different life before Culture House. And so very much. And then one of the fun things about the show is it's something when Ray and I met the very first time we talked about this idea. And it was really about kind of us both speculating on whether or not you could use hip hop and the and and women in the genre um to track a story about feminism and and whether or not it shows up in those in a decade in a clear organized way we just sort of started exploring the idea of like what does hip hop have to tell us about the various things that affect the lives of day-to-day women everywhere in the world everywhere but particularly in America we absolutely thought about it. I don't know about as as a literature course, but we absolutely thought about it as a long form statement on what it means to be a woman in this country over the course of the last 50 years. Ray, I have another style question for you, and this may seem like really basic, but it really stood out to me stylistically. Something I haven't seen in Really, any other music documentary was your use of captions whenever there were music clips. It's like you wanted the audience to see and feel their lyrics, not just hear them. Um, how did you come to that decision? Like, why did you guys choose to do that? Well, I think lyricism is an enormous part of rap. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's like, how great are you at wordplay and putting things together and creating metaphors? And so that's an enormous part of the art form and the artistry and to sort of really make sure that that's front and center was definitely intentional to show people that, you know, a big piece of this artistry is how people put words together. I mean, that's what it is, right? Um, and I think we also use that in a in a way to create um, juxtapositions between, you know, contrasting ideas and things that seem sort of hypocritical. And we're using lyrics and specifically in one section, we use lyrics when we're talking about um, WAP versus a song 
that Snoop made, there's like this entire section of, you know, lyrics around WAP and conversation. And then we sort of show some of the lyrics and some of these more misogynistic and super hypersexualized tracks by men. And there's certainly not the same kind of backlash. But when you actually look at the lyrics and you see them on screen, you're like, oh, my goodness, wait. That's what people are saying. What the fuck? Sorry, I don't know if we can swear. I you would- can swear because <laughs> it's the same content. I mean, they're talking about the same body part, the same, same content. Shit. And that's what Tucker Carlson is complaining about, right? No one wants to hear about a lady's dripping lady parts. Yeah. And then Snoop Dogg is saying that's that it. and he has a song about it. Totally. And I mean, I think that's when you're like, OK, this is fucked up because now I listen to it and hear it. It's sort of passive when you're in a club or listening to it on the radio. But when you're really looking at the lyrics on screen, you're sort of forced to reckon with like, okay, what are people actually saying? Um, And listen, I'm guilty of it, too. I love that shit. I love Snoop. I got no problem. I'm ready to listen to all of it. But it's also like when you go into that secondary tertiary thought process, you're like, okay, I do also need to process this and be aware of what's happening. Yeah. So one of the points the experts try to make in the film, I think, is that no matter which era of music, um, you know, these artists write with a purpose. It seems to be a lot of it is about black womanhood. But there seem to be so few areas in our culture where black women can express their truth without a filter of other people, without a lens, without other people sort of filtering their, their thinking. And hip hop seems to be a place where there is much less of a filter or no filter. Is that right? I mean, is it or is it there or is there sometimes a filter and we're just seeing that filter being like lessened now or lessened more and more and more, if that makes sense. Um, I think two things. I think one, hip hop, it feels that way just because it's the, it's probably the mass art form that Mm -hmm. that's the case, right? There've been black poets and black painters and black playwrights and all women expressing their truth in an unfiltered way, but they're not commanding the degree, the tens of millions of audience members um, that some of these artists are. And yet, you know, I think that the audience has also been conditioned to be more responsive. And this is a conversation you can have about Twitter. It's also a conversation you can have about music. We are more conditioned to respond to things that feel outrageous or things that feel sort of salacious. And, you know, Cardi B talks about this. She's like, I write records about all sorts of things. Y'all just want the filthy ones and put those, but you're the ones who put those at number one, you know, but I've written Mm. art, I've written songs about everything. And so I think that there's still a, there is still a filter and it's basically audience response, right? And the things that become more popular act as a filter. I'm sure that there's also feedback from record labels and PR and from collaborators and mentors and so on and producers um, that add their own layer But yeah, I I do think that hip hop represents the biggest platform for black women, very specifically American black women to express their lived experience, their conditions, their point of view, their worldview. The series also points out, you know, appropriation is obviously a big conversation in music, in art. But the series talks also about appropriation of style and of fashion. And that is a fascinating part of the documentary for me. You know, it's unlike other parts of the entertainment industry. You know, it seems like 
black women are being styled in large part by black women in the hip hop industry, at least in your documentary, all the stylists were black. And one of them says that if only I could copyright and trademark my styling, like I'd be a, what, a gajillion billionaire. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is something that I think we don't think about enough the actual look, the feel, the style, and how oft appropriated that is? Well, I think that style has always come from young artists on the street, always. Um, And that has been a case that's been replicated for years and years and years and years and years. That said, I think what makes it distinct and different is that when you add a racial dimension to it, you see people taking the style of young artists on the street commodifying it, monetizing it, and then excluding those same people from it. And so, whereas when you don't have a racial dimension to it, you can then just like pick your models from the street. We've had over and over and over again, high luxury fashion labels who go see what's happening in the Bronx, see what's happening in Brooklyn, see what little Kim is wearing, then put it on runways in sizes that would never fit black bodies, with no black faces represented, with no homage. It's not an homage. It's just a straight height. It's just a straight heist. (laughs) Um, And then actively act to exclude black faces, black people from that process. I think that's really where the anger and the resentment comes in. Um, And to Misa Hilton, who's an absolute legend, and we were so honored to have her in the series, she has created a visual culture that we still see on the runways today. And there is a broken line between what we see on the covers of magazines in these multi-million dollar fashion editorials and her work when there should be an unbroken line. It should be obvious where that is coming from. There are fashion influences and references we can see today and everyone's like, oh, Marie Antoinette, or oh, Cher, Bob Mackie. Oh, and you know exactly where it comes from. And yet that that lineage is broken as it, when the originator is black women. And um, I think that's obvious and we see that and that's where the problem comes in. So there's a section about hip hop and politics, although I think most, if not all, music is political. Groups like N.W.A. were putting out really powerful songs, but it was Sister Soldier that took the incoming fire in a big way. And man, her words resonate. Um, Carrie, in 2023... Do we need to sit for a long minute and weigh the importance of that moment? Yes. Yeah, we really do. One, because it was prescient. And she essentially says, Black people are getting killed every day. White folks are sort of doing this with compunction through state policy. So what would happen if Black people just designated some time and said, we're going to have, you know, kill white people day? She wasn't suggesting that we do that. She was talking about the absurdity of folks just deciding to engage in campaigns of mass racial violence and it going unchecked. And speaks really specifically about where where we are, but then also because of what it says about political leadership and, and our expectations for our leaders and what it means to demonize and scapegoat specific people or entire groups of people in a political discourse to try and win an election. I think we're maybe going to see some of that come in over the next 14 months, 16 months. And so understanding the those pivotal moments that really shaped a political legacy 
that would go on to define the moment that we're living in is really important. And I think for us, I I agree with you. All all music is political. I think all art is political, whether they whether you want it to be or not. Right. Whether there is a specific and explicit political angle or political message involved, I think being an artist just means you're reacting to the world around you. And that world is created by politics and 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 your relative degree of freedom. Some of the darkest moments in this timeline have to do with violence against women. And Ray, it seems like Dee Barnes' name will always be associated with Dr. Dre, but Dr. Dre is so rarely associated with Dee Barnes. And that's a point that you make, right? Yeah, I think that this is this is this is a big one. And this was a big piece that was super complicated for, I think, a lot of women to um, witness and to see. And I think that what Dee experienced is absolutely horrifying and and I think for her, it was really important for her to feel like she could talk about what happened to her and that people cared and that people believed her. And I think that she talks about that in the doc. Um, the fact that Dream Hampton, who's one of our EPs, was one of the only people who wrote about it and who validated who said this happened to Dee. You know, this happened to her and was trying to hold Dre accountable for that. My whole contribution to hip hop with that show, I mean, you think about it first woman host of a hip-hop show on a network television that was Fox 19. My contributions to hip-hop have been erased. And I think that it's not really fair to compare their career trajectories. They're obviously two very different people on two very different paths, but it's true. It's like what what um, Dee has to hold on to is the fact that she's likely most well-known for being the victim of an assault by Dr. Dre. And and as we all know, that's certainly not what Dr. Dre is known for. And I think that our attempt in this documentary was simply to just give Dee a place to talk about what she experienced and for that to be coming from her directly without any filtration or without any um, additional sort of point of view on it. And And that's what she does in this documentary. She just talks about what she experienced and how she felt about how she was treated even when we were interviewing some of the women and the journalists that were writing at the time, I remember specifically Kirna Mayo, when we asked her about D, it was really emotional and painful for her. Um, the fact that that happened to D, you know, that's someone that she knew and that she came up with. And I think what happened to her was felt by a lot of women at that time. Doesn't there seem to be something generationally that's changing, though, because what was it, Lotto, right? He was giving that radio interview. It's like there's something about this generation of Gen Zers who was just not taking it. Like they're just not taking the predatory nature of the industry nearly. I mean, some of them are obviously still signing these terrible contracts because that's what they're being given. But some, they're not afraid to talk about the shit that's happening around them in a way that's like incredible. Uh, and it's just it's really something to see. Do you think that, you know, this this upcoming generation of artists will have the power to like affect actual change and maybe like maybe have that not be the way it is all the time anymore? I think so. I'm really optimistic that that's the case. I mean, I think it's not only just that they're willing to, but it's because they're g- they're being believed for the first time. Right. It's they're yeah. not on an island. They're not the only one. And big, powerful names and women can protect them, will believe them, will amplify them, will rally to support them. Their peers will rally to support them. There is actual cultural support for being a whistleblower or a truth teller that didn't exist for previous generations. And that is how things change, like changing what is acceptable is how society changes. 
Right, but it didn't it didn't work for Megan the Stallion. I mean there's actual video of her limping across the street with wounds on her feet, and yet she was not believed by many, many, many people and many women included. Um, do you have theories about why the hell it was that Megan the Stallion was not necessarily believed one of the biggest stars in the industry? I mean, listen, I think a lot of people rallied to her defense. I think it became, you know, Cardi was out there supporting her. Megan had a bunch of stands out there supporting her. There was probably all sorts of things happening behind the scenes that we will never hear about of people supporting her and reaching out and offering material support to her. But we live in a misogynist society like that hasn't changed and change isn't a light switch. It's not a binary. It's not on or off. Right. It is a mess. We're in the messy middle of a lot of change right now. And I think that's those are two counterexamples, right? And the Lotto example and the Meg example, they're two sides of a coin and one inspires hope and one is absolutely dispiriting. And um, but I think that's because we're in the middle of it. I've got a fantasy question for you guys. The universe of hip hop has been at times defined by rivalries, diss tracks, East Coast, West Coast. But these women hip hop artists not only recognize their peers, they want to collaborate with each other. How different do you think the industry would look if it were built by and around women artists like the ones we are seeing in your documentary and the ones that we are seeing come up today? You know, I think what's really interesting is that in in our in the documentary, Yo-Yo talks a little bit about how when she was coming up, there was a lot of competition between women. And there was this feeling that you couldn't necessarily share information. And she felt like, you know, but that pressure is coming from the outside because they're making us feel like there can only just be one of us. So we're sort of being forced to be like crabs in a bucket. And I think that I don't know that we would have had that. Maybe we would have had a sweetie and a Meg and a light and, uh, you know, she got all at once from the beginning. And I think that that's something that we explore a little bit in the doc, which is that, you know, there's not just one way to present. And for a long time, you kind of had to choose. But now a lot of women are saying, well, I can be this and this and this. And maybe we would have had three dimensionality from the beginning instead of having to fight 50 years to make it happen. I celebrate all women who do this because there's space for you. There's space for your story. There's space for your style. There's space for your authenticity. And we appreciate you, no matter if you're talking about your life, of loving your body, sliding up a pole, preaching at the pole pit, feeding the homeless, being a politician, being an activist. We need it all because, you know, we're not monolith. We're not simple. We're complex human beings. And we come to all different experiences and all those experiences teach us and shape us. Yeah, I think all of that. I think I think that's exactly right. I also think it would be it would probably surprise people how much sort of artistic competition there would still be. You know, these are all very ambitious women and they know that competition makes them better. They know that when Nikki puts out fire album, they all want to they praise it, but they want to top it. Right. So I think that competition would still be there. Rhapsody talks about it. Queen Latifah talks about it. They talk about how battles are fun. They're important. They make them better. They make you stronger. And so I think the idea is that collaboration and competition can't coexist. And I think women disprove that over and over and over again to Ray's point. I think 
we would have seen a lot more collaboration on making sure that women got fair paychecks, women got fair billing, women got fair magazine covers, they got good business deals. It would have been a more hospitable environment from a business perspective. But I think the culture would have probably unfolded in some of the same, you know, same ways around competition and sort of like egging each other on and trying to one up each other. I think that's human and part of the fun of hip hop and has always been part of it. But it would have perhaps allowed people to um, have a little bit more dignity on the financial and business end. Well, speaking of fire, that is the documentary you guys made with Ladies First, the story of women in hip hop. Thank you so much for making it. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Ray Nijan and Carrie Twig, thank you so much for joining me on You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. I'm sharing. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Rayshem Nijan and Carrie Twig. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.